Hello, this is Bill Curley. And Holly Hudley. And welcome to the podcast In Between, which is an educational offering of St. Paul's United Methodist Church and Ordinary Life. Hi. Good morning, Holly. How are you? I'm I'm good. How are you doing? Well, as you know, I'm recovering from fairly extensive hand surgery. Yeah. Which has been um, a real important lesson for me to help me identify with people who only have the use of one arm or Mm -hmm. one hand. Mm -hmm. And um, also to make me very, 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 very grateful for being able to have the level of health care that I can receive. When I know that so many people in the world don't have that. So that's one of the things that's going on. I have been using my time to get thoroughly engrossed in Ilya Delio's new book, The Hours of the Universe. And I know that you just started it. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't realize until I started it that it was a collection of kind of writings and essays that she's done over time. Um, which will be enjoyable, but I like the way it's set up um, as you see, you know, hours of the day as, as it would pertain to a monastery. Um, kind of cool. <laughs> well, I know that I don't remember the date exactly, but I know that we have Matt Russell scheduled to be a guest on this podcast coming yeah, up. In the first week of and, October. And, and Matt said something that I want to, talk with him about and it's also something that is I think elaborated on quite thoroughly in the essays that Ilya writes of course she's a huge Teilhard de Chardin proponent authority on Teilhard I would say mm-hmm. and um, what Matt said in a group meeting that I was in is that he had reached the conclusion that we have been taught that love conquers everything. And mm. he said, I don't, I don't believe that anymore. Mm. I believe that what love conquers is the ego. Mm. And of course, Tayar and Ilya are both proponents of the heart of the universe being love. And that if we can be in harmony with that love, we can find the healing that we are looking for. And I'm reading that against the backdrop of what's happening to the Haitian refugees at the border of Texas, what is happening in our very dysfunctional government, Mm -hmm. what is happening in the fact that allegedly the smartest and wealthiest country in the world, the United States, leads the world in COVID infections and death. Mm -hmm. Because sometimes I look out and what I see looks pretty hopeless. Yeah, it, I, gosh, those images of the of the border patrol beating back Haitian migrants is just heartbreaking, heart aching. And I think, like you know, Matt saying, "Love conquers the ego." For sure, this place where we've gotten in terms of there is not enough for everyone or um, that I have power over you and will abuse it 
um, is, is such, is so divisive. And then I think like, gosh, those border patrol guys must love at least one person in their life. You know what I mean? So, so then we have to talk about what is the quality of the love that it takes to conquer the ego, right? And, and not just to love that one person in our life, but to have the sense of love for all. Um, and for that to mean that I treat you as I want to be treated. I treat you as my equal and maybe even better than my equal, <laughs> you know? And I, I, I was just lo- looking at, um, I'm sure you read it some time ago, Plato's Symposium. And uh, there's this idea of the ladder of love that sort of stretches between the human and the divine. And that sort of final rung on the ladder of love is love for love itself. It starts with love for a particular. That's the lowest rung on this ladder of love. And it elevates to love for love's sake. And I do think that love ultimately is a conqueror of the ego, but we don't come out knowing how to love in that way. We have to learn. It's a practice. It's a discipline, you know? If we are lucky, we are loved in that way by our caregivers. Um, We are adored and, and set forth on a positive platform. But most of us have to figure out how, how shall I love, (laughs) you know? You know, what we're dealing with in Ordinary Life this week are two questions in the Jesus narrative according to John, where um, two men who become the first disciples, um, are seen by Jesus following him, and Jesus says to them, what do you want? Mm-hmm. And I think that what we want sometimes is not helpful to us, not helpful to the world, and that really maybe the real question is, what do we need? Mm-hmm. It's funny, I, I read... Um... I read that line in its multiple translations, uh, and I'll talk more about this on Sunday, but one of the translation is, what do you want? Another is, what are you after? And a third is, what do you seek? Mm. Which kind of goes through the layers of, of want to need. What is our heart's longing? Um, I think wanting something. So for example, I, I want a piece of candy is a strategy to meet a need. If we stay in the level of just want, I want a piece of candy, then we don't get to the deeper need. The need might be for nourishment. The need might be for um, even play or creativity. Uh, You you know what I'm saying? But but the want is the strategy that we use to, to meet the need. And how do we sort of, it's like the ladder of love. How do we grow our wants to become or evolve into our heart's deepest longing. Well, I had a a teacher, a man I love very much, whose name is Carlisle Marnie. Marnie was, um, oh my, Marnie was from Tennessee. He had a gruff, deep voice and a Tennessee drawl. (laughs) And I heard him give a lecture one time on 
the scene that we're going to talk about from John coming from one of the other gospel writers where Jesus walks by and sees these men in a boat fishing. And mm -hmm. he says, come follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And Carlisle Marty said that his understanding of that is Jesus said to them, um, come follow me and I will fix your wanter. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> I will show you what to want for. Yeah. I love that too. Yeah. Yeah. Have you ever read um, anything by Frederick Buckner or Buchner? I've read almost everything he's written. Okay. So you know a lot of that famous quote by him, right? Where your the heart's gladness is where the world's need. And yes, I can't get it right right now, but um, you know what I'm talking about. I'll try to find it in the meantime. And he writes a lot about this idea of a calling or this idea of how do we show up in the world with that calling, with that vocation, and many call it God's will. Um, that language is so problematic for me, but I think it amounts to thinking about the same thing. What does my soul want to bring forth? It's Viktor Frankl's question. What does life want from you? What does you, how do you need to show up here? Um, right. And that's, that's such a, I think that that is probably the human the greatest human question. What am I meant to do? What is my meaning and purpose? You know. Bigner wrote a great piece on how what we say we believe and what we believe are so often at variance. And he said, if you really want to know what you believe, look at your feet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I've used that quote in a lot of talks. And inevitably, when I say it, people will literally look down at their feet. <laughs> What, what Bigner meant was pay attention to where your feet take you mm -hmm. because that's a revelation of what you really believe. Yes. Yeah. So there's some trust. I think it has well, the way you just said that. And I, that's funny. I reread that last night. Um, it has to do with being in the body, you know, being so sort of, and this is to me, this one of the biggest problems of Western Christianity uh, that's been so male and white dominated is that it's taken us out of the body. And I think that that listen to your feet is about being present to what is. And he talks about just letting life guide you, just noticing, being in the moment of noticing, which calls upon our favorite Meister Eckhart, you know, just noticing he, he said in a sermon, um, I need not ever write another sermon if I just watch the caterpillar. <laughs> You know, this, this pulling us into participation in life and intuit, intuiting, trusting our intuition, trusting that we will be on a path that we can follow if we just pay attention. <laughs> yeah, and I'm, I'm seeing more and more too, and I don't want to shoot myself in the foot by saying this, that we have to have a understanding of these matters mm -hmm. that transcend institutions. Yeah. Yeah. That was your idea of the title a couple of weeks ago, beyond religion, beyond institution, beyond doctrine, beyond creed. 
And it's, we've put so much attachment into the institution and people like you and me. And what I mean by that is um, white folks, middle-class educated have been served well by institutions. And so it's easy to trust that the institutions will provide. Um, but I think you're right. We have to get beyond them and outside of them. Shake it up a little, <laughs> shake it up a lot, actually. <laughs> but that is where I get despair. You, you were talking about the images that have kind of floated across our news stream and social media this week, which are devastating. Um, I get hopeless sometime when I think about taking on those huge institutions and how they seem to be a personality in and of themselves. Um, well, Ilya says, Ilya says in this recent book, and again, I think what you said about it is really important to stress. It's not a book of new writings. Mm -hmm. It's mm -hmm. a collection of essays that she's written over a period of time. But she says in this book, in one of the essays that as important as social action, social protest is, that it's not the answer, that it, there's something that must precedes that. Mm -hmm. And that is that the, the, the people who are involved in action must, as Richard Rohr would say, come out of a contemplative stance where they see themselves as one with all who are, For sure. then social action can make sense. Well, what you just described is what is called spiritual activism, right? There's activism right. on the kind of egoic level. And I don't want to be dismissive of it because I think that a lot of young people who have really strong voices and a lot to say who just aren't in the developmental stage yet to have a more contemplative um retrospective or, or haven't lived long enough to even have enough perspective on life to look back, <laughs> you know, are motivated by the gathering in the community of protests. It feels empowering to raise voices and raise cares and concerns in a group. It feels less alone, but the spiritual activist, I almost think is kind of like the midlife and beyond activist <laughs> who has a deeper practice of, of contemplation, but I don't think it needs to negate the other. You know, that's where we can benefit from having mentorships and having relationships between uh, younger and older folks and, and just holding space for that developmental process to happen. You know, I, I think like a 17 year old has something to say, but they might not have the spiritual grounding or the life perspective yet to say it in the way that we're talking about uh, with contemplation being part of it. Yeah. But, yeah. But it doesn't mean it shouldn't be said, you know, we need great teachers. I'm, I'm so lucky. I feel to have, have been able to call you a mentor for the better part of my adult life. <laughs> so I, and that mentorship is, is not as not so common anymore. Do you think that's true? Or do you, do you see that there, that those relationships do exist? No, I think that's true. Hmm. I do think that's true. I think that, you know, the, the emphasis that I have made that Jim Hollis has made that Richard Orr has made is that you, one has got to navigate successfully 
the task of the first half of life to have a sufficiently strong ego to be in the world. Not an inflated ego, not a damaged ego, but really, as Robert Johnson would say, a strong ego. Mm -hmm. And this is what I think makes it possible for people to fulfill Jesus' teaching of being able to be in the various worlds that they live in without being of those worlds, that Mm -hmm. is, without getting their identity from those worlds. But you can't stay in that part of life. You've got mm-hmm. to keep growing and grow into the maturity that provides wisdom, that provides knowledge. And now, as you and I are attempting to do, and God knows how successful we will be at it, trying to teach something about a basic course in mysticism, yeah. um, at least to open the door of mysticism so that people can see there is a whole new dimension or whole other dimension of way of perceiving things, um, like Meister Eckhart did, like John of the Cross, like I believe Jim Finley does. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm prone to put Ilya Delio in that category. Yeah. Yeah, there's so many, I, many women in that category who yeah. have not been the dominant voices that we've learned from, I think, of one of my favorites, Lady and Conway who was a a Neoplatonist philosopher in the 1600s around the same time of Descartes. And she, I just have this image of her watching with fascination an old decaying log as it produces new life. You know, what happens when something decays is it produces new bacteria, new microbes, new fungi that grows out of it, you know? And, um, And she gets from that this, this oneness of everything around her. She gets that, oh my gosh, we're all, everything is ensouled. That was her language. Everything has some element of ensoulment, mm-hmm. um, you know, that gets close to panpsychism. But I think what she, she's writing in the 1600s, but what I think she means is that um, she did not feel separate from that natural phenomenon. She pointed at the radical idea of evolution before it had actually been conceived of. Mm. And, you know. You know, Holly, as we're sitting here having this conversation, um, I want to say that John Shelby Spong Mm -hmm. is a real sign of hope uh, for the path that we're trying to walk. Not only are we using him, his book is one of our sources, but um, I read in reading one of the obituaries that was written about him. Um, Spong, white guy, upper middle class, mm-hmm. high echelon in the church, ordained the first woman to the ministry in the Episcopal Church, ordained the first openly gay man in the church, and thereby I think he shows us a model of what people in power can actually do to make mm-hmm. a difference. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and how fortunate that he is a conscientious person with power, right, who saw that need for inclusion and uh, an array of voices, you know, and I think you're right. This is like, we're, we're being called forward 
to that thread of thinking. We're hanging on to his thread, you know, and saying what else needs to sort of be challenged or what's still in those lines. I, I still think we've got work to do on inclusion and equity and ordaining more women and uh, LGBTQIA. I mean, you know, I mean, it's, it's, there is um, an overwhelming amount of work that needs to be done. So I just now thought of that saying, well, how do you eat an elephant? <laughs> One bite at a time. Right. <laughs> I, I don't think I'll ever eat an elephant, but you know what I mean? <laughs> I hope not. Yeah, that would be cruel. <laughs> My son told so, me last night that um, he said, mommy, did you know elephants sing to each other? Isn't that cool? Yeah. Did you know that? I didn't. I, I knew they communicated with um, noises and even the tremors of their feet, but they also sing to each other. So, yeah. So there's a there's a series, I think, that we access through Disney Plus called Newborns. Mm. And uh, they had a whole show devoted to newborn baby elephant. Oh, How long the mother carries the baby, which is a long time. 20 months and then months. when the baby is born how the herd gathers around as a family mm -hmm. and takes care of the baby mm -hmm. for a long time yeah yeah they say that the grandmother of the matriarch usually um is the disciplinarian <laughs> kind of nudges the baby into the right you know and, and stomps or kind of snorts her sound to right the baby's um path I guess <laughs> if she gets if the baby gets too rough or gets too um, clingy or gets you know all of the things I just think the matriarchal nature of the elephant herd is pretty fascinating well I do you think that there are any risk in us talking about what people need huh well I think the risk is that it could sound like we're telling them what they need mm-hmm and really the question is for that to be pulled forth, right? Um, I, I think of two things. One is, I return to this so many times, but the root word for educate is the Latin educere, which is to, to lead, to lead forth, to pull forth. Mm -hmm. And so I think the risk is in our wording. Will we word it so that we leave people with the question of what do I need to pull forth from within? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, what do you think? Do you think there's a risk in telling people? I asking? do. Yeah. Because I think it can make it, make us sound like we know better. Yeah, that's exactly right. Condescending, uh, not just, helpful. <laughs> what you just reminded me of is that saying in, in the Gospel of Thomas, if you bring forth what is within you, so that gives us something else to elaborate on yes. this week. Yeah. You know, we could always go back to the Gospel of Thomas and just do a twofold John Thomas dialogue. <laughs> Um, no, um, that's absolutely one of my favorite sayings in the Gospel of Thomas. Um, 
One of the other things I think about is the work of Marshall Rosenberg, who created nonviolent communication as a discipline. I think elements of it already existed, but I think he really pulled it together as a discipline or as a tool. And there is a universal set of human needs that we all have. And you might prioritize different needs in your life than I prioritize in my life. But each of us kind of touches upon all of those needs. And um, we're all in different places with our needs at different times. So I think that that's, that's going to be the work too, is not to project what we need onto what we think others need at that moment. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, clearly our, our country and our world needs another path. We need to be walking a different path. Because at the moment, we're walking a path that is clearly leading to our destruction. Yeah. So I don't think that it is arrogant or haughty or bossy or authoritarian for us to say that, that we need something other than what we're doing. Yeah. Well, it makes me think about um, the image that I brought up from my son Caleb's drawing last week, the ladder in the sky, you know, what is that ladder in the sky that we can't yet conceive of what's on the other side, but that we need to be reaching for. Um, and that's what drew me back to reading about the ladder, Plato's ladder of love is we can't imagine what's on that other side at the top beyond, etc. But we need to enter into that sort of radical imagination, first have being able to say, I want a better world than the one we're living in. What do I need to imagine to call that forth? What do I need to play with <laughs> to make that happen? I don't have an answer for that. You know? <laughs> yeah, it was rhetorical. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I, I look, I get, as you know, I don't watch the news on TV. So I do get a news feed um, that I look at after I do my morning practice. Um, that I get, I get to one from CNN and one from Apple. Mm -hmm. And one of the ones that I get at the bottom every day has a just statistical readout of where COVID cases are in the world. Mm -hmm. And as I said at the beginning of this podcast, here we are, part of allegedly, allegedly the smartest, wealthiest nation in the world, and we lead the world in COVID death, mm -hmm. about 2,000 a day. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, I think part of that idea that we are the smartest, wealthiest nation is part of our problem. Um, that we, I read something the other day um, by a guy who calls himself the son of Baldwin. He's an author and he wrote on his feed, one of the most heartbreaking things about the United States of America, about this country, is the way in which it refuses to see itself in the mirror while at the same time refuses to look at anything other than itself in the mirror a twin denial vanity that cannot be reconciled resulting in violence that cannot be quelled without shattering it first. 
And I just thought, wow, that's a beautiful statement and so true. And I think it speaks to what you just said. We pride ourselves on these things. But instead of turning the gaze inward, we're gazing at ourselves in the mirror going, we're so great (laughs) without allowing that to actually be an internal reflection. You know, the the man, Brian Stevenson, who started the Center for Justice, is that what it's called? Equal Justice Initiative in Montgomery, Alabama. Yeah. I I read something by him just this morning, Mm. a brief thing that I I get Sojourner's Daily Meditation on my email, and they quoted him today as saying that the the way that you can tell if a country practices justice is by the way it treats its poorest, most... um, you know, people who have the least resources. Mm-hmm. And um, we don't do good there. Mm-mm. No, we don't. I was listening to NPR the day that sort of all the images of the uh, Border Patrol horse whipping the Haitian migrants came out and they were talking about it on the radio as I was taking my son to school. And I asked him, I said, what do you think? Caleb, what do you think we should do about immigrants and migrants who are crossing the border trying to come to our country? And he said, let them in. (laughs) And he said, at least have a station where we can feed them and give them water and give them clothes. And I was like, you're 12. (laughs) You know, it was just, and he's right. Take care of the needs first, worry about the rest later, but we don't even take care of each other on that level of basic need. Um, You know, let them be human first. And, And then our entire mindset would shift if we let people we didn't understand or didn't speak their language or didn't have a foundation of trust with, if we let them be human first, that's the first way we would see them. I heard someone say yesterday that, isn't it interesting that a nation of immigrants wants to keep immigrants out? It's the most ironic thing. <laughs> and and if, I know the true, I want to just address the people who say, well, practically, we can't continue to let everybody in forever. So we do need a sane immigration policy. Absolutely. There's no question about that. And, and the countries from which uh, people are fleeing need also support in creating more humane countries, more livable places. But yes, we absolutely need a policy that is fair. But I go back to what Caleb said, treat them first do no harm. You know, first do no harm. That's basically what he was saying. Yep. Yeah. Well, it will be interesting to say, see what you and I have to say on Sunday about <laughs> is what you want really what you need? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Here we go. <laughs> and is what you need something you can really want? Yeah. There's another side of that coin, too. Yeah. Okay. I will see you Sunday. All righty. See you soon. Okay. Bye bye.